0: To add a bit more noise to our time here. Thank you, Kelly, for reading. Uh, Please keep the Bible open as we look more closely at this part of God's Word. And why don't I pray as we prepare to do that? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word that you have revealed to us. Give us the ears we need now to hear it rightly. Give us humble hearts to receive it and the will to put it into practice. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, a bit over 10 years ago, my wife Emily and I were in the city of Berlin. We went on a European holiday for a month and a half. And when we were in Berlin, we did a bit of a walking tour there. Uh, And we saw all sorts of interesting things as you do in a city as sophisticated as Berlin. Uh, We saw the uh, Brandenburg Gate, that great monument in Berlin. Uh, We saw the Reichstag, which is their government building. A lot of history there. It was a very interesting walking tour. But it was also a confronting tour in many respects. Because laid out throughout Berlin for all to see are what you might call the sins of Berlin's past. And Berlin has a past. We visited former Gestapo headquarters where in the lead-up and during World War II, thousands of Jewish people, thousands of prisoners were tortured and experimented upon. We stood in a little park which we found out was standing over Hitler's bunker. This was across the road from a vast Holocaust memorial and we saw remnants of the post-Nazi history, remnants of the Berlin Wall, that terrible, literal dividing line that split East and West Berlin and East and West Germany, where over the course of decades, thousands of people lost their lives in desperate bids for freedom. It's probably fair to say that few cities in the 20th century have needed renewal like the city of Berlin. And yet Berlin today is just that. It is a renewed city. It's not a perfect city, but it has undergone renewal, especially when you understand its recent 20th century history. And our passage today, that Kelly read for us, Psalm 51, it speaks of people, you and me, having the same need, the same sort of need for renewal. Maybe already you just, intuitively know what I'm talking about. The renewal, perhaps, of a past of which you're ashamed. The renewal of a guilty conscience or of a damaged relationship. In varying ways, these are experiences familiar to all of us. Why is this so? Well, this is so because of what the Bible calls sin. That human inclination to edit God out of our lives, our desire to live life without reference to our Creator and His vision for human flourishing. It's the spiritual condition of sin that lies at the heart of all human brokenness, that fuels all human guilt. In the language of Psalm 51, a guilt that has been from birth, a condition that that has been with us from the moment our mothers conceived us. And so the renewal that Psalm 51 speaks of is fundamentally a spiritual renewal. Because of sin and its effects, all people need spiritual renewal. If you have never walked with the Lord, if you've never recognised God's lordship over your life, you would not call yourself a Christian believer, you need spiritual renewal. And even if you have walked with the Lord for many years, you need spiritual renewal because of sin and its effects. So what does that look like? How can spiritual renewal happen? Well, Psalm 51 meditates on these matters. Psalm 51 presents us with a godly man, a man of God, suffering under the crushing guilt of his own sinful actions. Ultimately, Psalm 51, a bit like what Mike said, it's a reality check. It confronts us and challenges us about the reality and the severity of sin in our lives. Whether we tend to think too little of our sin, it's no big deal. I don't really need to worry about that. Or whether we think too much of our sin, I could never be forgiven for that. Psalm 51 speaks to both of those. And while it confronts and challenges us, it also comforts and gives great confidence of the magnitude of our Creator's grace and the real hope that human beings can have of being spiritually restored with our Creator. Some of you may know the background to Psalm 51. Uh, It's there in the little title, the very first bit that Kelly read we've looked at these psalms throughout january and a number of them have had these titles this one probably tells us the most about it a davidic psalm when nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to bathsheba it's connected to a specific person king david like psalm 13 was that we looked at like psalm 23 but it's also connected to a specific incident particularly one recounted in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, where David, as king of Israel, abuses his power to sleep with a woman who is not his wife. Ultimately, to have her husband killed so he can take her to be his own. It's a gross abuse of power. And after trying to cover up his crimes, God sends a messenger, a prophet named Nathan, to confront him. And when David is confronted, and he does realise... He admits as much to himself as to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's his response. And Psalm 51 is part of that response of David. It comes from David's blackest moment of self-knowledge. And yet it explores not only the depths of his guilt that he feels, but also the farthest reaches of salvation that God can make possible. And in David's response, we get a glimpse of the process of spiritual renewal that God has provided for his people. And so if you are someone who is bearing the weight of guilt, or you don't think your sin is a big deal, please look closely at Psalm 51. Where does that process begin? Well, we see it begins with confession, and it begins with contrition. Look in verse 1. He starts, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, wash away my guilt, and cleanse me of my sin. You may notice there that that the psalmist, David, he uses a couple of slightly different words for sin, each with slightly different emphases. He speaks of his rebellion, he speaks of his guilt. And he speaks of his sin. This variety of words is poetic. It expresses the seriousness and the scope of his sin. He has failed his creator in every possible way. These are the words of someone who knows he's got no right to claim anything of God. But he does have something. He does have something, doesn't he? What does he have? He has God's faithful love. David asks that God be gracious to him because of God's Hesed. Maybe that word rings a bell from previous Psalms we've looked at. God's covenant commitment to his people and his promises. That was the basis of so much hope for the psalmist in Psalm 13 and in Psalm twenty three. That God is committed to his people. And for all his unworthiness, David knows that he belongs. That God has committed himself to him. And so David can open his heart, his sinful, guilty heart to God. Opening our sinful hearts is the starting point of spiritual renewal. Verse 3 For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. What does that mean? My sin is always before me. Well, it makes me think of a Simpsons episode. ever watched the tv show the simpsons where bart the son of the family cuts the head off a statue in the town but this isn't just any old statue this is a statue of the town's founder jebediah springfield and bart has done this to impress some tough kids but then he realizes just how bad this act is when even they are appalled at this act of vandalism and the whole town goes into outrage And the problem is, Bart has hidden the head in his bag. No one knows it's there, but Bart knows it's there. And throughout the rest of the episode, he drags this bag around and it gets heavier and heavier. And he feels guiltier and guiltier. And eventually, he opens the bag and imagines the head speaking to him. And when the head speaks, all it does is judge him. All it does is condemn him. And of course, Bart is just condemning himself. My sin is always before me. The refuge of the guilty conscience is secrecy. We know that from experience. That's intuitively where we want to go when we've done the wrong thing, to keep it quiet. But the thing is, we know what we've done, and God knows what we've done. And that self knowledge, that inescapable awareness of what we have done, of our sin, What it does is it actually proves God right as a judge. We can't say, no, 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 you got the facts wrong, God. We know in ourselves. And David acknowledges that, doesn't he, in verse 4. Against you, you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. David here, he describes two of the defining characteristics of sin. One, that it's fundamentally against God. We hurt other people. In that way, we sin against them. But the spiritual failure is primarily, first and foremost, with God. And the second characteristic is that sin, tragically, is at the core of our very being. It corrupts our relationship with God from the very beginning of life. But this isn't just an Old Testament thing. This is something that the New Testament teaches with just as much clarity. It's there in Paul, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, when he says, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. It's there in the Apostle John's letter, John 1, when he says, if we say we're without sin, we deceive ourselves. We're just fooling ourselves. We know we're not without sin. David knows he's not without sin. And so faced with this sobering reality, this self-knowledge, he's brought to the point of confession before God. Like the city of Berlin, he, he acknowledges the sins of his past. He lays them all out for God to see, as it were. I remember speaking with the tour guide who was taking us around that city. And he said that this act of saying this happened in our city by people who lived here, acknowledging that openly was the first step to the city experiencing a degree of healing. Without acknowledgement, without confession, there is no route to spiritual renewal. That's the first truth of Psalm 51. But notice that David doesn't just confess. Do you notice that? He doesn't just say, yes, that's what I did and it was wrong. It was me. No, he also expresses contrition. So he doesn't just acknowledge his sin. He is sorry for his sin. Deeply sorry. And that leads him to ask for forgiveness. That's the course of action that leads him to. This is where the psalm begins in verse 1 and it's where his confession leads here in these next few verses. And the picture language of verses 6 to 9, it's vivid, isn't it? David wants to hear joy and gladness again, as if all he's had is the deafening silence of guilt. He imagines his bones as having been crushed by the weight of God's just judgment, weight that he cannot bear. He imagines those bones being reformed and rejoicing. He wants that. He wants the guilt of his sin blotted out, stricken from the register, like it never existed. He wishes spiritually to be whiter than snow. Whiter than snow. I went to the snow many years ago, just once. But when the sun shone shone on that snow, it was so white, it hurt my eyes. With God, there are no half measures. David knows this. David wants this. And he knows God wants to do this for him. He knows that the God of faithful love desires... That, his, that sinners be restored to him. And so he asked for forgiveness. But how? How is God going to do this? How is he going to grant him forgiveness? Well, by cleansing. By cleansing, David. That's what the hyssop plant reference is about. The hyssop hist- plant was part of the ceremonial washing ritual, a ritual which ended up with the pronouncement, you are clean. You once were not clean, but now you are clean. The word literally is de sinned. You are de sinned. That's what David wants. He wants God to clean him. And so he says, You've given me away, you've given us these, these these sacrifices and these rituals. But here's the amazing thing. Because that can all sound a bit distant for us and a bit foreign for us. We don't practice those rituals to be cleansed before God. But ultimately, David's guilt can and was blotted out in the same way that our guilt can be blotted out, by Jesus' death, by the blood of Jesus. All that Old Testament covenant and sacrifice, it was a shadow of the New Testament realisation, the effects of which we get to enjoy. Jesus' ultimate sacrifice, the truly innocent one, never with sin, bearing the guilt of the guilty we looked at the letter of 2 Corinthians last year and famously in that letter Paul writes to the Corinthian believers God made the one who did not know sin to be sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him that's how we get clean David couldn't comprehend that that's how gold would work one day ultimately and we can look back and see that that in his grace God has provided a way for us for our guilt to be dealt with for sin to be paid for and so when you read David asking for forgiveness the forgiveness that he asked for you can ask for too the cleansing that David knows is possible is possible for you and for me the starting point is confession the starting point is contrition and asking for forgiveness, the reality check. But then having taken that first step, moved through that starting point, what does the experience of renewal look like? Well, the second half of the psalm tells us it looks like restoration, and it looks like rejoicing. The picture that David paints in verses 10 to 19 is of a person completely different to the broken individual of the first two verses, isn't it? He says, this is what I want, but he's imagining himself being restored and being in this state. He pictures a clean heart, one that has been created for him. That use of the word create is his way of pointing to the fact that this is nothing short of a miracle. That is a term for what God alone can do, to make something that was not once there. He pictures having a steadfast spirit, one like the spirit of God itself, that is willing, that finds delight in God's will. And as part of the experience of renewal, he says the renewed one teaches others God's way. In the depths of guilt, that seems like the most impossible thing, but they can now teach others God's way not in a holier-than-thou sense, but because they have received God's grace and they can point other people to it. A living testimony. And you don't have to think any further than the Apostle Paul himself, once the violent oppressor saw and the testimony of God's grace in his life and the forgiveness that we can read about. And all this means that in a truly meaningful way, in a truly meaningful way, the renewed person is closer to God than they were before, at least in their experience. They are closer to God than they were before. What do I mean by that? I mean that they understand his character all the more. They understand the, the, his grace all the more. They delight, therefore, all the more in him and in his love for them. And so David says, naturally, this restoration leads to and includes rejoicing, giving thanks for that. Verse 14, Save me from the guilt of bloodshed God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I mean, David doesn't just move on. You see here that the enormity of his sin continues to horrify him. He refers the guilt of bloodshed and yet David knows that once God's forgiveness is experienced, salvation is complete righteousness that could not otherwise be his is now received, so that is cause for deep and delighted praise which brings David to what is arguably the climax of this psalm the great summary of its teaching the take home Verse 16 and 17. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. When we hear of a broken spirit, we don't often attach positive connotations to that. We think maybe of someone who's been brought to the brink and gives up. But here, a broken spirit represents sincerity and honesty. And so this offering of praise and thanksgiving it's possible because it's offered in sincerity. It's not merely as a ritual, a box ticking exercise. The unrenewed person brings sacrifice and burnt offering as a means of pleasing God. That's what God wants, right? So I'll just bring that and then he'll be happy. Tick the box, right? And for us, that often finds expression in coming along to church maybe even in doing ministry volunteer or paid that's what God wants right I'll do that and he'll be happy with me but as always God is interested first and foremost with the posture of our hearts sometimes my kids do the wrong things they hurt me or their mother Emily or each other And after having it brought to their attention, it's not uncommon to hear something along the lines of, sorry, Ellie, or sorry, Josh, sorry, Mom. And when you hear that, you just know they don't mean it. You know they don't mean it. But they think that that's what you want to hear. And so they say it. They want me to be sorry, so I'll say sorry. They tick the box. But it doesn't make us feel any better. That's not a ritual that pleases us. No doubt David did that after committing the sins that sit behind this psalm and before Nathan confronted him, he probably went to the temple and offered his sacrifices and went through his rituals. And while he was doing that, in that moment of not acknowledging his sin, he probably thought, yeah, this is pleasing God. But he realizes now that that wasn't pleasing God. But now with his spirit broken in contrition and honesty, his heart humbled in repentance. God is pleased. Like a parent, when they can tell their kids are genuinely sorry, when they see them expressing genuine remorse. And so David knows that God has forgiven him, that God is restoring him. And so that leads to true worship, that leads to God's true blessing. As the psalm concludes in verses 18 and 19, In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. It's possible David penned those last two verses, but it's also more likely that they were probably added some years later by the wider community who were taking David's words the words of an individual, and applying it to themselves as a, as a community of God's people. And this is a great reminder that spiritual renewal has a corporate dimension to it as well. I mean, this psalm begins with, for the choir master, and so that how uh, it's meant to be understood, and that's why we do things that we do here. This wasn't just for Israel and, and David, but for us too, we continue to exist as a community of God's people and so that's partly why we sing songs that speak of what God has done on the cross that praise him for that partly to encourage one another and to remind ourselves what God has done to praise him together that's partly why as Tim will lead us through after the sermon we we confess together not every week but regularly we confess aloud together remembering that We're not just saved as individuals, but as part of a community. We can be renewed as individuals, we can be renewed as God's people. It starts with confession and contrition. And it concludes gloriously with restoration and rejoicing. It doesn't mean the effects of sin and the consequences of our actions won't stay with us, but it does mean we can know that we will not be cast away. So don't make the mistake of thinking too little of your sin it's no big deal there's no sin too small to confess but also don't make the mistake of thinking too much of your sin because there is no sin too big that cannot be forgiven if you learn nothing else from this psalm learn this God desires the spiritual renewal of his people he doesn't just tolerate it he desires it and he has made spiritual renewal possible That's what gave David hope. That's what gives us hope today. And of course, as Christian believers, as God's people today, we have even more reason than David to trust in God's mercy, to be confident in this. Because we can look back at the cross, the greatest possible example of God's faithful love, the fullest expression of His great compassion. If we have placed our trust in Jesus We have God's Holy Spirit in us. And unlike David, who despairs that the Holy Spirit might be taken away because he saw that happen to his predecessor, Saul, that will never happen to us once our faith is in Jesus. What great reason to be confident. That is the seal, the guarantee. That is God's chesed to us. The cross blocks out all our guilt. And so in the words of the song we're about to sing, If you think about your sin and you worry where you stand with God, hear this. My sin is nailed to the cross. My soul is healed by the scars. The weight of guilt I bear no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so seek spiritual renewal. Ask forgiveness on the basis of the same sacrifice, Jesus. That is a sacrifice God will not despise. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have not left us to ourselves, to our sin. That you have revealed yourself to us and given us a means of being made right with you. Thank you for Jesus and his death and resurrection on our behalf. Thank you that he paid the debt we cannot pay. Lord, where every person is in this room with you right now, may you assure them that they can be forgiven and find peace in a restored relationship with you. And we pray for this in Jesus' name.